Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Countries in Asia are dealing with the COVID-19 crisis differently, and Vietnam has been widely praised in its apparent success. At the time of recording, the Vietnam official status have reported 324 cases and zero deaths, despite its proximity to China and popularity for Chinese tourists. But is the success down to tight government control? Here to discuss Vietnam and its COVID-19 progress is Bill Hayton, author of Vietnam Rising Dragon, and his forthcoming book is The Invention of China. Thank you for joining me, Bill. Pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Could you begin by fleshing out the Vietnam COVID-19 response for me a bit? They've been touted as a success. What about their situation has made them successful? It has been a success. I mean, official figures say that, as you say, no one has died, uh, which is quite staggering uh, compared to the you know the apparent failures that we see in, in Europe and, and North America. Why they did it uh, is really by controlling the number of people who got infected. This is very much a story of preventing infection rather than solid uh, healthcare treating people. Um, the best numbers we have say that only 21 people developed severe symptoms and only seven required some form of intensive care. So it's mm. absolutely staggeringly good numbers. And so the question is, you know, how did they go about doing this? And I think the answer is really down to travel restrictions. So restricting the people that get into even start with and maybe also a quick reaction. Yeah, I mean, so was one media report that the Vietnamese authorities were actively uh, spying on the Wuhan uh, health and, and public authorities uh, from an early point mm. in, in the uh, outbreak there. They didn't trust the information that was coming out through Chinese official sources. And this seems to possibly explain why Vietnam was so ready to uh, respond so quickly. One of the things they did very early on, which seems to have been uh, very important, is, is cutting flights from Wuhan and then shutting down transport links to, to China more generally. And remarkably, for a country that has a long and difficult to police uh, land border with China, they seem to have been quite effective in stopping the number of uh, uh, potentially infected uh, people coming from China. Of course, I guess you should see this in tandem with what China was doing. I mean, the fact that China put a, a frontier around Wuhan presumably meant there were fewer Chinese people being infected. And so therefore, any Chinese people or Vietnamese people, anybody who'd been living in China coming into Vietnam was less likely to be affected. So at, at every stage, you're putting blocks on the transmission of the virus from the epicenter in Wuhan in, into Vietnam. And what about uh, their contact tracing efforts? They're getting a lot of praise for how they've been doing that. They seem to be very quick and very expansive, is a way to put it. Yeah, basically they had locked off the country in many ways, um, it, starting with China, but then as other countries started to develop infections in South Korea and then, and then European countries, including the UK, very early on, cutting down flights or saying that people coming from those countries had to be quarantined. And then people arriving in the country would have a compulsory 14-day quarantine. And I think mm. above all, that these were, these were supervised quarantines. It wasn't sort of go to your hotel and, and don't talk to anybody at breakfast. It was you will go to the place that we tell you to go. It will be basic, but it will be livable, I suppose. Um, and, you know, there were a few moans and groans from tourists about that. Point was, it was supervised. And 
even when people got slipped through that net and infections did get into the community, I think the key to Vietnam's success has, has been its pre-existing uh, structures of surveillance. Um, mm. So Vietnam, ever since the start of the, the communist state, really, has instituted a, um, systems of network monitoring. Every city block has a designated neighborhood warden. You have um, police and other security officials at a very low level. And their job, you know, is to keep an eye on what goes on on the streets around them. Sometimes these are quite elderly people, you know, grandfathers and grandmothers, whose job is basically to be nosy, keep an eye on everything <laughs> that's going on. And if that is, you know, somebody causing trouble locally in a political sense, then you ring one number. And if it's somebody who is uh, looking like they've got a bit of an unusual cough and cold, then you call a different number. And so it's this network of surveillance and political control which provided the backbone for Vietnam's response. That makes it quite innocent sounding, but I have a mother-in-law who would be on that hotline rather quickly without being asked. <laughs> but So it's a bit more organised than like a, a community watch, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, behind all this is the muscle of the Ministry of Public Security and then you have local militias or functional forces, as they're, they're sometimes called, and so it's not something that other states would want to have or could sort of suddenly invent in response to a pandemic. You know, I've encountered these people when I was being a journalist in Vietnam. They're the same people that when you have a dissident who's you know, making some trouble or cause some attention, if you want to go and you know, interview them in their house, these are the same people that will be on the barricades preventing you going to interview them, for example, or they will be the people uh, who will be closing off the street if there's some kind of uh, protest about a land confiscation or something like that. So these people have dual roles. They're, they're embedded in the community. They do you know, political control and they do virus control as a side benefit, two faces of the same system. So it's just a re-implementation of that workforce almost. Yeah, and you know, I guess if there was nothing going on, they'd just be sitting and keeping an eye. And if there was a family dispute going on, and you know, people were shouting in the street, then they would be intervening in, in, in that dispute, or they would be telling people to put their rubbish out on Wednesday, not Thursday. Or, or you know, there are kinds of you know many things that these people do. But if people started complaining about corruption or or hanging out with an organised dissident movement or were thinking about standing as an independent campaign in the forthcoming uh, National Assembly election, they would also be informing on those too. So what are the stories that are coming out of Vietnam then? How quickly are they reacting? And how extensive are they tracing and monitoring, I suppose? Well, it seems to have been very effective. I mean, people talked about tourists coming in at one point on the border and then being monitored as they travelled through the country. And I presume they have access to things like um, tracing mobile phone signals so they can tell where people go. You know, I've had experience of you know, being followed directly you know, on visits to Vietnam the last couple of years. More obviously, in, when I was in Ho Chi Minh City, I mean, literally, you know, 10 guys in blue shirts kind of following me around all day police of some kind, you know, as I went to meet people in a cafe for a chat, then, you know, somebody would come and sit next to me and, you know, about five minutes later, you know, on his own, on his mobile phone, quite obviously making sure that I, I noticed that I was being watched. That you see them, yeah. So they can put that kind of muscle on the street quite quickly. The way it was done in this context, I think it was probably less overt, less obvious, but the community were recruited to trace contacts. So, for example, there were two British tourists in the centre of Vietnam 
who were identified with having the virus. Um, and then they were interviewed as to exactly where they'd been. That information was then publicized, you know, exactly where they'd been, bars and, and all the rest of it they'd been in. And then anybody else who'd been in those places was invited to turn themselves in. From all of these different contact tracing practices, something like 200,000 people were quarantined in, in centralized centers for the 14-day period for the national effort. So mm. everybody who thought that they may have been in contact with somebody or you know, who'd been in a bar where somebody else had been in, I mean, a lot of this was hugely unnecessary. The fact that we only had 288 cases and we had 200,000 people quarantined. But I guess by overreacting, they made sure that they got pretty much everybody. And mm. so they were able to, through community persuasion, text messages and videos and all kinds of sort of social messaging, persuade people that this was in everybody's you know, common interests to do this. And then if people didn't respond, then there were systems of local control to track people down and, and made sure that they did respond. And so, you know, one case in Hanoi that I know of, uh, you had one woman who tested positive. The entire neighborhood, 180 houses, 600 people, was blocked off, you know, quarantined to prevent people going in or out. And that could be done, you know, relatively quickly, given the existing structures of surveillance and control. And you've mentioned uh, text messages and messages that the government have been putting out. And Vietnam isn't the freest country when it comes to media. So I gather controlling the message has been a big part of their strategy. Yeah, I should say that, I mean, I think a lot of this has been willingly received. But at the same time, let's say that kind of counter narratives would be controlled as well. So there's an interesting case, for example, to do with the visit of the American aircraft carrier to Da Nang and then the subsequent outbreak of the of the virus on that ship a few days later when when it was sailing away. Mm. So narratives about you know where those sailors went when they were in Vietnam and whether they picked up the virus in Vietnam, they've been squashed. But the main messaging about stay at home, go and be tested, do what you need to do to stop the virus spreading, you know, that's been everywhere in the Vietnamese official media and social media and direct messages to people through phones and, and neighborhood wardens and, and that kind of thing. And a very catchy pop song. And a very catchy pop song, which, you know, kind of how to wash <laughs> your hands and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But it's interesting, the first report has come out written basically by the people who were responsible for sort of monitoring and, and um, tracking down the early stages of the epidemic. And they really put the vast majority of the credit down to early movement controls and the imposition of the ban on flights from China. Those are the things which they say basically made the difference. You know, lots of other countries did public information films. Lots of other countries did testing. But for Vietnam, it was the early movement controls that really uh, made the difference. What was the military's role in this? Because they have been deployed. Is that the right word? Yeah, I mean, they were called up pretty early on, the sort of general order. Um, and they were mm. used to create camps where people could be kept. And I guess if you know, things had got worse, then they would have been able to have blocked off roads and, and all the rest of it, I guess, at some point, And they would have been used to maybe reinforce hospitals or, or whatever. But it, it never got to that point. I mean, mm. although, you know, Vietnam's success is really 
a success that was down to stopping the spread of the virus rather than treating people with the virus. I mean, it never got to the point where, I mean, as, as I said a moment ago, you know, more than seven people actually required serious uh, health care. We talked about them controlling the message as well, but part of the message is the numbers of people that have been infected. And if anybody has died, we've still got that figure of zero. Mm. So how reliable are these numbers that we've been getting? Well, I mean, I've queried them and people have pushed back. People who are involved in the, the epidemiology, Westerners, Vietnamese, say they're pretty confident that the numbers are good. I mean, even if you had, you know, it was 288 cases and in other places, other countries where you've had similar numbers of cases, you've had a death rate of around 1%. So you'd have thought at the very least you'd have had three deaths. In Vietnam, at this time of writing, has had, had none. There's a kind of query about somebody who tested positive and fell ill, then apparently tested negative and then died. So, you know, you can argue as to whether that should be, you know, one. And I guess there will be a kind of political element to being able to say none. So you'd be a brave uh, doctor to say, no, actually, we should count this person as, <laughs> as the first one. But it's also worth looking at in you know, other places in, in Southeast Asia where you know the, the numbers are also very low, surprisingly low. You know, Cambodia, Myanmar, Thailand, all have very low numbers, you know, much lower than, than you might expect. And it makes you wonder whether there's something about the strain of the virus that's been spreading in Southeast Asia, whether people are younger or generally as a population and they're fitter and able to survive. But the numbers in Southeast Asia have been you know surprisingly low. In terms of kind of the numbers, I think we can broadly trust them, but you have to be kind of careful about whether in some places deaths may have been ascribed to, you know, respiratory failure or something rather than this. But I think mm. Reuters in Hanoi asked funeral parlours whether they'd experienced any more deaths than normal. And you'd expect things like, you know, that to show up if people weren't being recorded in the official statistics. And, and they couldn't find any evidence for that. So the COVID-19 coronavirus has ignited an ideological clash uh, arguing whether democracy is equipped to respond well to a pandemic. Do you think that Vietnam's situation bears weight to this at all? Obviously a tough one. And the article that we wrote in Foreign Policy got dragged into this in, in a big way. I mean, I, I think what makes the difference is the structures of preparedness and the actual implementation. That's what Vietnam had. And other countries, you know, had it too, or something similar. I mean, Taiwan and South Korea are obviously counterexamples of democracies that managed to have a successful response. The examples of other countries in Southeast Asia, which are democracies to varying degrees, and you know, who also seem to have had some success. But yeah, I think it's the it's the statist view, I think, of society, which has probably made the difference. You know, where states are still seen as being strong and important and able to take decisions and control things. That's made a decision. And those states that have withdrawn from a lot of elements of social life and are then trying to sort of reinvent things, they're the ones that seems to have suffered. But you can't imagine protesters storming a government building in Vietnam with uh, guns and protesting their rights to not wear <laughs> masks or no, anything like no, that. No, <laughs> you know, people think about this as an incident in itself, but actually, of course, Vietnam is a society which over decades has been trained and shaped in, in, in a certain way. 
I mean, people know that there are there are limits to public expression and that kind of thing. And so it's not like suddenly people would sort of wake up and think uh, this is um, an infringement of my basic rights because, you know, they kind of wake up each morning knowing that there's a clear space for acceptable political discourse. There's even a space for, well, let's not call it opposition, but criticism, shall we say, if it's done in the same, in the right way. Mm. But, you know, outright opposition, that kind of stuff, there's just, just no space for. And also, of course, you know, given the fact that there was a general perception of threat in society, I think in lots of ways this has made it easier for the Communist Party to present themselves as the legitimate leaders of the, the state and the people. And in some of the somewhat defensive reactions to that article I mentioned writing earlier, you kind of see this coming together and this idea of a kind of cohesive nation, you know, rallying around the flag to some extent, and therefore the party's putting itself as the, the natural leader of the response and therefore of the nation. So your article got a bit of backlash as it got dragged into that debate. So a lot of people want to admire how Vietnam has reacted to this and come through the pandemic for the moment, but it also contained a lot of inconvenient truths for people. Yeah, it was almost as if people want a counterexample to sort of Trump's America and, and Boris Johnson's Britain. Mm. And so therefore, they kind of reflect a sort of mirror image and go, well, sort of Vietnam must be this great example because its numbers are so much better. But I was trying to, in the article, to show how it couldn't be just simply replicated and that it comes with costs. Of course, if you're the Communist Party, you'll be saying, well, it may come with costs, but of course it's saved everybody's lives in the current pandemic. And so therefore that's another feather in its cap. But it's it's almost as if you know people look at Vietnam as somehow being some utopian society that it's somehow meant because it's managed to control this and i just wanted to point out that, that <laughs> utopia exists nowhere and that there are downsides to this as well as its ability to successfully control a pandemic mm. i guess there's a lot of countries that are doing a lot worse looking at this example uh where they're you know opening up for tourists again and seem to be on top of it all and going right how do we bottle this magic yeah, and if you wanted to bottle it, then you would copy the things that Vietnam did well, which is, you know, you'd close your borders, quarantine people coming in and, and, and track everybody as, as they moved around the country. And that isn't really compatible with uh, booming tourist sector, <laughs> as well we're going to discover in Europe in the next few months. And so it's kind of hard to know what can be learned. I mean, if you're New Zealand and an island and you can control people coming in and out quite easily and you can quarantine people and all the rest of it, maybe you'll have a chance. Whether the same applies to Australia, I don't know. But obviously in countries that have <laughs> land borders and you know where movement restrictions are generally pretty limited, you know, the lessons are hard to see. Bill Hayden, thanks very much for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks for talking. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. Bill Hayden's new book is The Invention of China. It will be coming out later this year. And you can follow him on Twitter. He's at Bill underscore Hayton. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.